All right, our text this morning is uh, going to be found in Colossians chapter 1. And uh, that can be found in the Pew Bible on page 983. Uh, many of you know by now, uh, if you've been with us, that uh, and if you've been a, stu- a student of God's Word, this, the Bible, Old and New Testament, there are different uh, genres, different literary genres in Scripture. There are like what we just moved out of the Gospel of Luke, which is a historic account. Uh, and then last summer, another example would be the poetic wisdom literature. Remember, we studied the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and then we'll return in the fall, like we were this past fall, into historic narrative, uh, which we'll get back to uh, 2 Samuel in the latter half of King David's life. So we, we, we move in and out of these types of, of genre because uh, that's, you know, we... we we don't just, you know, camp out typically in one particular book now or genre. Now we're going to uh, to give some attention uh, to an epistle. Uh, the, there were a letter. It's another way of saying uh, epistle is a letter. It's not really a book because it's just these four chapters. It's a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a particular people at a particular uh, time. Now, uh, but like other letters that Paul had written, they weren't just intended uh, for that location. They were often uh, expressly uh, communicated to, uh, to send it out and to distribute that letter. And, and not only for them and the surrounding region, but for believers uh, down through the ages. And so this is, of course, inspired of God. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes for us uh, this, which is life-giving. It is, it is wisdom. And, and to think about that as, as a tremendous gift, regardless of whether it is poetic wisdom literature, or whether it is something that is historical in Scripture, that we find ourselves learning about who our Creator is. We look outside and we see the cosmos, the created world with order and beauty and symmetry, and we say, there must be a God. There must be. And, uh, and I'm not that God. Uh, you're not that God. We are not God. We did not create ourselves. Now, it would be, uh, that would be, that would be, it is a wonderful gift to know that in creation. But what more? That God is so beautiful that he has also revealed himself, specially, uniquely, through uh, his word and through his son. And even now through, uh, through time, down through the ages, through the preaching of that word. And the spirit of God bringing light and illumination to the scriptures that we might not only understand... Uh, but apply, that we might not only apply, but be transformed and changed uh, because of God's word. This morning, I'm going to just read the opening two verses of Colossians 1, and I'll spend a good deal of time today just giving us an overview or introduction of sorts uh, to this particular uh, letter. Paul is writing from a prison, and he references that in chapter 4 of Colossians, Uh, But we also read about it in Acts 28 because Luke, who was the one who wrote that gospel we've been studying in the book of Acts, he writes in Acts 28 of how uh, Paul had an imprisonment in Rome. And while there, he also uh, wrote Ephesians, another letter that's very well known and loved and appreciated. We've preached through Ephesians. He has uh, also in prison wrote uh, to the church in Philippi. We studied that a couple of summers ago. And then he also writes a letter to uh, Philemon. By the way, uh, if you want an application point before I even open up the scripture, uh, here it is. Read Colossians. It'll take you all of about 15 minutes. Did someone say 15 minutes? Good guess, Marilyn. Gold star for you. Uh, it, it literally takes uh, somewhere around 15 to 20 minutes to read uh, this. Even if you read it fairly slowly, I encourage you to do that. And uh, also, uh, before we even read the scripture, I'll just tell you where I'm going. 
it's listed there in the order of service, and there are three questions. Uh, the first one is, where does it begin? And I say it, I mean this letter. Where does this letter begin? What is in view, and how does it intersect uh, our lives? How does Colossians, I'm not going to, to follow a precise uh, you know, uh, order with this. I'm going to kind of weave in and out of these uh, particular questions of background and theme and, and the key focus. And then also things like, how does this uh, connect with my modern day life? So uh, just in honor of God's word, once more, if I could ask you to stand as we read just these two verses. And then we'll ask God's blessing. If you'll join me, uh, please hear this. This is the word of God. Colossians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Lord, we ask your blessing on this portion of your word to our hearts, our minds, our lives. Lord, we pray that you'd accompany your word, this, this exhortation, this encouragement from your word by the power of your spirit. Would you forgive me? an unworthy sinner to proclaim the mysteries and the beauties of this good news. For all of us, Lord, would you take this portion of your holy word and, 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 and work it into our hearts. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated, but leave that Bible open. We're going to look at different uh, verses and chapters in Colossians. I'm just reading, I read those two verses as a launch off point. Uh, before the days of podcast. Uh, before you can easily subscribe and listen in, which I, I, I enjoy, uh, I, way back, I, I don't know how far back, in the, in the 90s when I was in high school and early college, I used to love listening uh, to a particular uh, Minnesota, Minnesota public radio show uh, that hosted, uh, had the uh, host as the author Garrison Keeler. Does anyone know what this show is? A Prairie Home Companion. Yes, I love A Prairie Home Companion. Oftentimes, on a Prairie Home Companion, Garrison Keeler would tell the stories of uh, a particular small town called Lake Wobegon. Are you familiar with Lake Wobegon? Has anyone been to Lake Wobegon in Minnesota? No, you haven't, because it does not exist. Lake Wobegon is a small town. It's a fictitious small town in Minnesota that Garrison Keeler tells lots of wonderful stories about. He talks about Lake Wobegon where... All the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children are above average. It sounds like my kind of town. Yeah, Gerson Keeler talks about uh, Lake Wobegon in the summer. They don't uh, lock their cars because they're worried about theft. They just don't want some neighbor to dump a bunch of zucchini in their car from their garden. Lake Wobegon, he writes and says, is the little town that time forgot and decades can't improve. Why do I bring up this small town? Well, in a lot of ways, Colossae is, is a town like unto Lake Wobegon. It's not particularly significant or large. It's a forgettable city. It's a, it's a city that Paul himself never actually traveled to uh, directly. Uh, we know that because in chapter 2 of, of Colossians, he says, uh, I would love to see you face to face, though I never have. And he has care and concern for them. It was a town, it was a city that was kind of off the beaten track and hidden. Uh, to be even more precise, as the bird flies, it was about 100 miles uh, east and inland from a, a very important city, which was Ephesus. 
And, uh, and, and so Ephesus kind of lived in the shadows of this important city for a long time. And that's in a, a region of the world uh, that we know of as, uh, as Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. It was about 10 miles from Laodicea, another city. Colossae, Colossae had once been a, a fairly important city, but because some of the trade routes began to change and shift and go through Laodicea, Laodicea in Paul's day, at this particular point when he writes this, it's, it's kind of fading. Colossae is kind of fading as far as significance. It was a city that was mostly Gentiles, but there were some of the Jewish population there for, for several centuries. The, the, uh, one of the best commentators, Bishop J.B. Lightfoot, says, Without doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. So what does it have to say to us? You know, like if, if the apostle, not, not the apostle, but St. Patrick had written to a, a small town to, to situate, you know, what's the significance of this? Well, I think if we go into some of the journey of, of where it begins in the background, we'll see it come into focus. And it really needs to begin with, with people. And so just try to track with me, if you could, uh, by way of the names of some of these people, try, try to remember. The first name is Philemon. Philemon was a relatively wealthy businessman, and, uh, and he lived in the city of Colossae. And uh, at one point, he, somewhere around 53 AD, uh, decided to travel down to Ephesus. Wouldn't have been, for sure it wouldn't have been. And some of these details, we don't know, and we have to fill in the gaps. But we know that he would have gone to Ephesus, and we know that this probably wasn't his first trip. But this particular trip in 53 AD for Philemon was very significant. He makes his way into the city and there's a buzz and there's a stir amongst uh, the folks. And it finds out that there's this, uh, this large gathering. People are coming to, to hear and listen to uh, a Jewish man uh, whose name originally was Saul. That was his Hebrew name. And uh, now his name is Paul. Paul and, uh, and that's the more Greco-Roman name that he has. That Paul is preaching this message. And he's, 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 he's bringing hope to people. He's actually in the name of Jesus healing people and freeing others from the oppression of demons. And so there's, there's a fascination and there, there are people gathering to hear and learn about how uh, the Jewish Messiah is actually Jesus of Nazareth. That he has risen from the dead, that he, is, uh, that he has paid the price and penalty of our sin and that Jesus uh, is, is worthy of our worship. And so this is puzzling. And not only is he the Messiah for the Jewish people, but Jesus is, and this is true today as it was thousands of years ago, the Lord and judge of all the earth. It's either true or it's not. Of course, what does that hinge upon? The resurrection. Either Jesus is alive or he is not alive. And if he is alive, then that's a game changer. That's true for any of you this very day. Now, I would just highlight that what happened with Philemon, back to our character, was that he, he was intrigued and he wasn't only intrigued and, and curious, he was actually pierced and persuaded and transformed by that good news gospel message of Jesus. Philemon became a follower of Christ. He made his way uh, back to his hometown of Colossae and he did w- what anyone would do in his shoes. He opened his home and started a Bible study and that Bible study turned into a, a church and people began to uh, follow Christ and gather there. Uh, Paul has an interest in trying to, of course, help them. Around the same time, there's another uh, gentleman that's also from the city of Colossae, also not uh, a Jew. Uh, and, and his name is Epaphras. 
And uh, he, he, was back, he was converted as well. And they both are back in their hometown of, of Colossae. And like I said, they have this fellowship, this church plant. And it's only a few years into it. And uh, we don't know all of the details, but somehow Epaphras makes his way back to Rome. Why is that significant? Or over to Rome. Well, that's where Paul is. Paul's imprisoned. And by God's providence, uh, he, he, is, he encounters Epaphras. And uh, he, he's, he's talking about the details and he's excited and he says, here's the update and here's the update on the, the church there and here's my update. And so he sends him, he sends him back, Epaphras, uh, with a message, actually two letters that he wants to send back uh, with various updates. And Paul sends a letter through this messenger, uh, Tychicus, and his, he, we read of this in Colossians 4. Uh, Tychicus, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities, Paul writes. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you uh, for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, you, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. That's the other name, right? Philemon, there's Epaphras. Uh, they helped start the church and gather the church there. And then he mentions this name, Onesimus. I'm going to send this gentleman, Onesimus, back with you. Why is that significant? Well, we're going to find out, but Onesimus was a slave. He wasn't a good slave, and he probably stole from his master. Who is his master? Philemon. Some of you need to play Bible trivia this afternoon. This is very good. Now, going back to Philemon, Philemon is going to find out about Onesimus becoming a Christian just like him. And what's going to need to accompany that is, is reconciliation and, uh, and some apologies and some, some mending. And we're going to read some more about that. And then, of course, the book of Philemon, the other letter that Paul sends with this letter uh, back with uh, Tychicus and Onesimus uh, will be uh, for us to explore. Now, uh, why write this? Why does Paul, uh, why does Paul write this epistle? Uh, what's in view for him? Well, there's several things, but one of the main things, it seems, is there, there's, a, there's a young church, and just like the churches down through the ages, they get uh, influenced and, and sometimes even uh, distracted and detoured because of uh, false teaching. Even more particularly, what we would label and call sometimes heresy. Now, heresy uh, is, is, is potent and dangerous at times because it's half-truths. It may have words that are redefined in spiritual language. A heresy uh, is something that uh, is, is, a, is a twisted half-truth. They existed then. They exist to this very day. There are things that are said of Jesus that are not true about the Bible, that are false, that are about the Christian faith. And how do we have peace with God that are convoluted? Or, or in error because of different obscurities and false teachings. Much of chapter 2 in Colossians will take up uh, some of what he's trying to correct. Now, unlike other epistles in other cities, we know what that was. We know even sometimes Paul will say, I want you to look out for so-and-so, and he will name names, and he will talk about different groups. But with Colossians, with this letter, he doesn't call out anyone particularly. So we're left a little bit wondering. We, we have some idea that, that maybe some of them were Judaizers who were legalists. Some might have, and, and the legalists would have said some of those who were uh, desiring to follow the Jewish law, uh, ceremonial law and other things. Saying, yeah, 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 Jesus is, is good 
and, and Jesus is necessary as a savior, but to truly be a follower of Jesus, you need more. You need to abide by these things. You need to observe circumcision and these dietary laws and these ceremonial uh, washings and details. And so that, that, that might be part of the problem. Another part of the problem might be uh, Gnosticism. There's your, the big word for the day. It's not really that big of a deal, but Gnosticism is a, is a philosophy that uh, in essence could be summarized to say that uh, rationality is supreme and, and, and thoughts and, uh, and, and the spirit, but not the body. Uh, the body is, is corrupt. In fact, the Gnostics didn't even believe that Jesus had a physical body. He just appeared to be human because if he is to be anything of, of divine, he wouldn't be able uh, to truly have a body. We know, of course, that Jesus even now has confined himself to a physical, glorified, nevertheless, body. So he wants to correct that. He also wants to, he wants to correct uh, most likely, and like I said, we don't know this uh, for certain, that there were inevitably people there that subscribed to classical Greek thought. Uh, that too had tons of error about it. And, uh, and there was ways that people would exalt rationality and they would minimize and push aside feelings and, uh, and physical labor and the importance of, of, of how that, uh, the, the mind and uh, the heart and the hands all work together. But I think the common denominator amongst what other, what, whatever heresies and false teachings had began to infiltrate the church in this city of Colossae was that at the very bottom line common denominator is that, yeah, Jesus all fine and well, but Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not sufficient. You need more in some fashion. You need special steps. Uh, you need special knowledge. You need your experiences uh, that are unique to actually uh, produce salvation or peace with God. But regardless of what you know, do or experience, uh, you know, the gospel says <laughs> it's Christ. It, it's the person and work of Jesus who is our redeemer first to last. That's why verse two, what Paul says in the opening here of Colossians, grace and peace to you from God, uh, our father. That's a grace and peace that comes through, through Jesus. It's, it's, it's his grace, his unmerited favor, his smile, his riches given to us because of Christ's expense. It's only possible to have peace with God through Jesus. And you say, well, that seems, that seems very narrow. It's not my words. Those are Jesus' words. Not my, you know, not my theory. That's the, the overarching testimony. And of course, it does, again, hinge upon whether Christ is raised from the dead or not. Many can get in line and affirm Jesus' teaching, his example, uh, you know, his, his ethics. But, but, but he's just a prophet. No, that would be false. That would be less than in some ways, we can thank God that there were problems in Colossae because it gave Paul an opportunity to write for our benefit, for their benefit, to bring some things into focus, not the least of which is probably more wonderfully than any other little uh, letter and, and any of Paul's other writings. He is saying and setting forth the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ more beautifully and forcibly than anywhere else in Scripture. So I hope that this will... Uh, you know, encourage our hearts. I, I, I want us to appreciate too that there's a reason that he opens in verse one by saying that he is an apostle by the will of God, not of his own choosing, not of his own uh, appointment or election. The, the apostles were 
part of a, a temporary office. Uh, temporary is key word of those who had physically uh, had encountered the risen Christ and been commissioned or the physical Christ, the risen Christ to to carry forth the work with his blessing and his authority. So when Paul says, hey, I'm not just writing to you. And Paul was a very learned man and an intellect probably exceeding uh, the, the overwhelming majority of anyone else. He knew the Old Testament. Uh, you know, he, he understood culture. But Paul is not saying on the basis of that, but on the basis of God's choice, I'm coming to you with authority to say to you what God would want. Now, he was a man, like I said, he was converted. He hated Christians and followers of Jesus. His original Hebrew name of Saul was changed. That's common in scripture. If you go and look, there's all throughout the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, there are people whose names are changed. You can read about it in Acts chapter nine. You can read about it in Acts chapter 22. Paul has a dramatic change in conversion. He has a new name. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's emblematic. It's, it's, it's significant to, to speak to the fact that when you do truly follow Jesus, you and I will have a new identity. What is Paul emphasizing in this letter? Well, if you take me up on my application point, which is to read it all in 13 to 15 minutes. Not right now, just to hang with me. Uh, if you do that, I think you're going to see what is in view, the theme that comes more and more into focus. And that is this. Jesus Christ is all. And you may say, well, all, all, all what? Uh, Jesus is all what? He, well, he is indeed all powerful, but, but even more so, he is all sufficient. He is all supreme. He is preeminent. He is above. Let me just give a, a few passages from uh, the first three chapters, the opening three chapters. And I'm just going to work these kind of in reverse, if you would. So flip with me, if you would, over to Colossians 3. Turn the page. Um, Colossians 3, verse 10. Paul's saying that, hey, listen, put off the old self and put on in Christ this new self. And this is what he says in verse 10 of chapter 3. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek, excuse me, Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So what, what, what does that mean? Verse, Christ is all what? Well, let's go back into... Colossians 2, Colossians 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, this is significant. If you haven't turned there, turn there. This is chapter 2, verse 3. He's speaking of Christ. He says, in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, he did not say some. He said all, and that's significant, obviously, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of whom could you say that or what could you say that about? Who has, who possesses? 
Who, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then he goes on, verse 4, to say, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, that's going back to his purpose, which is to try to shore them up, to try to encourage them, to try to, uh, to correct them where they have been deceived. Now, notice, in, in, but this is going back to chapter 3, when he says that they are, in verse 10 of chapter 3, being renewed in the knowledge of their creator. Who is that creator? Now, you would say, I mean, you may say, well, God, 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 general, God, neutral, God, little G, God, God, big G. I don't know. But but to say that we believe in the creator, we oftentimes would think, well, that's God, the father. Right. And God, the son was late. No, this is referring to who is the creator. It is the eternal son of God, eternally existing as such, who is that creator. How do I know this? Well, let's, we're, move, we're moving backwards, so now we're back up into chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1, verse 15, we're going to find out. Who is Jesus? He, verse 15 of chapter 1, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The, the way I memorized it uh, years ago, it was the NIV. All things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Now, last night, we, we, we had uh, dinner around the table, and uh, I read those three verses. And I said, you know, it's, tell me why, if, if you believe this is true, that to say of Jesus he is unique is just a profound understatement. How could this be said of any one less than the God-man, that he is the creator, that he was, John 1, the word of God before the foundation of the world, calling into existence out of nothing, everything by the power of his word. That does not sound like a prophet. A prophet would be a, a nice mouthpiece for God, but Jesus is not merely a prophet. He is a prophet, a priest, a king, creator, God, in whom all things hold together that he might be preeminent. You can't make too much of Jesus. You cannot make too much. We have a phenomenal way of making much of ourselves. And we try to make much of you, but you just can't make too much of Jesus. Consider that. So what? How does this intersect their lives and our lives? All navigation begins with one crucial thing. What do you think that is? Any and all forms of navigation uh, begin with one important thing. Garmin, GPS, your smartphone, right? That's what you need so desperately. Well, 
There was a time, young people, I, I know it's hard to believe, that we had no such devices. And some of us go back before the days of that printed thing called MapQuest. And that was important to have too. But even if you have the MapQuest, it doesn't mean anything until you find where you are. Let me just rewind. A couple weeks ago, one of our kids needed to get some clothes. We, we, we actually found our way up to the, uh, the, the mall in Braintree. Only like the second or third time I've ever been there. And it's a pretty large mall. They, they actually have these things still in America. And you walk into a mall and it has a, a food court. And uh, it has double layers, sometimes triple layer floors. And you walk into these stores and, uh, and, and it's a pretty thriving mall. And you go in there and... Uh, I wasn't going to go shopping. I just needed to find out where the bathroom was and I could sit and read my book. And so I, I, I go to that big lit up map that's right there, the, the, the screen. And it's, it's got the purple zone and the orange zone and, and the atrium here and this and that. And all of that is nothing until I find what? The red dot. The red dot which says you are here. Friends. If I could say today, if, if you, even with the, the weakest, faintest fate, faith, are trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are redeemed. You are a daughter or a son of the Most High God. You know where you are? Do you know where you are? You're not at 77 Rockland Street. You're not in New England. You are in Christ. The number of times, and that, that I mean by over a hundred times in Scripture, we see some variation in the New Testament of that. In Him, in Christ. Colossians is filled up with it. When you spend your 15 minutes reading it, maybe it'll take longer because you can underline all the places where he talks about our union with Christ. What a beautiful thought. We have hope. We have joy. We have purpose. We have righteousness. We have promise. We have victory because of our life in Christ. Another passage, chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you catch verse 4? I, I mean, I, it's pretty stunning to think if you are a Christian here today, the reality, the hope, the location, the identity is, verse 4, Christ is our life. That is a profound mystery, and it's a beautiful hope all at the same time. The teaching, the doctrine of our mysterious union with Christ Is, is sometimes overlooked and forgotten. I mean, I remember, 
I remember kind of getting reawakened and reacquainted with it. I started reading the New Testament in a different way. I couldn't, like, that is who we are. I started seeing union with Christ all over Scripture. It's one of the reasons that I chose Colossians for us to study this summer. I love it. One of my professors uh, in seminary, Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish theologian, writes this of union with Christ. He says, This is a spiritual union with our Lord created by the agency of the Holy Spirit. He, Holy Spirit, carries us into Christ. And he goes on to write, if we are united to Christ, we share in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, his hidden session in glory, and we'll also share in his returns. So extensive is the union that Paul can say that Christ is, quote, our life. That's quoting verse 4, Colossians 3. A mystery, our union with Christ, even in these four verses, you can appreciate that because of Christ, we have a new position. We have a new home. We have a new identity. We have a new family. We have a new hope. In Christ, we have a new inheritance. I could go on. I think you see There are things that accompany our union with Christ that we're going to discover in Colossians that means that we have benefits that are legal benefits. There are are relational benefits. There's, There's personal existential benefits. There's residential benefits. The implications are many and we will see them. Being united to Christ means that we die with him, which is to say that we die to our sinful ways. Oh, the ways that we do this. We, we, want, we don't want God to be God sometimes. We, we want to chase after things that will give us meaning and joy and significance and fulfillment. And they promise us everything. And in the end, they don't deliver. It violates our conscience. It doesn't, it doesn't honor the supremacy of the Lordship of Jesus. We say, I know that all things were created by him and for him, but I'm living for me. How's that working for you? It's a secure position. We have secret things our identity, there are things that are part of our identity that even our, our family or spouse don't even know about. Is, is what is in you that you are hidden in Christ? The treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. To be hidden in Christ and secure and transformed and loved and adopted and It's something to meditate and contemplate. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I would love to try to explain more. Well, in closing, let's go back to these opening two verses. He refers to them as the saints. Notice he's not saying this one saint or that one saint. He's saying the saints because that's the identity of all of them. They are the chosen ones that have been redeemed. They're the ones that are part of the family, not a special class the Greco-Roman world would have loved to say, oh, your, your status and your rank is so important. He'd say, no, 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 no. We're all family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we uh, also have this, this distinction because we are not. Notice he says there in verse 2 that you are the, the, the faithful brothers in, in Christ, the saints. He says, but grace and peace from God our Father It's the brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. So again, back to our identity. We are from and we live in a a space and and time. And we are we're from 
you know, the South Shore, or we're from this particular town, that particular location. But our new identity is in Christ. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. We are at New England, but we are in Christ if we live by repentance and faith. If we surrender. This past week, I read a quote from Corey Timboon. Probably never heard her name. Maybe you have. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. There's a whole movie. True story. Uh, she, she and her family were Dutch Reformed Christians living in the Netherlands, and they found their way of, of, of helping out uh, Jews, showing compassion to people who were threatened because of Nazi Germany. And they hid people, six of them at a time, in the walls of their own house at their own risk. And, of course, over, over the years of saving not a few but hundreds of Jews, they themselves were persecuted. She, Corey Tim Boom, and her sister, uh, who was a watchmaker, their, their family, they, 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 they lost it. They, she was sent off to a concentration camp herself. Her sister ended up suffering, becoming sick, and died. They both spent time. They, they, they had a hidden Bible, and they shared Jesus and led others in the prison camps to, to Christ. She, wrote, she writes this. And this is a woman who's known suffering. (laughs) If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. If you look at God, you will be at rest. This is not sentimentality. This is a distinct reality that hinges on the fact We can only be at rest in God if we are hidden. Our life is hidden with Christ, the God-man. Let's surrender even now. Father, we look to you. We know in part of that precious freedom that we have because of the glorious triumph of Christ over death, hell, and the grave. We thank you that he is alive, that we are united to him. We thank you that you look upon Jesus, who is our wisdom and our righteousness, and you don't look upon our record, our faults, that we can be hidden in Christ and forgiven and cleansed. And as I said earlier, Lord, the the ways that the law convicts us, shows us like a mirror our sin, it cannot cleanse us. We know that the law is not enough. We are not enough. Psychology and 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 in industry and money and relationships and experiences are not enough. Christ is enough. Help us to know him, to treasure him more. Even as we study this letter, as we unpack more of the, the insights, I pray that you would grow us into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would watch over us, that we would be a people who long for your return and we would live with the kingdom values and Embody the ways of of Jesus. Teach us, aid us to hate sin and love him, Jesus, because we pray even now in his name. And as he taught his disciples, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom.